The Secrets of Technology is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Technology. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Technology, where we discuss the technology news that's important to you from a uniquely Catholic point of view. And joining me today on the panel are Jack Barazzini. Hi, Jack. Hey, Dom. And Father Andrew Kinstetter. Hi, Father Andrew. Hello there. So today we might have been talking about, given my plans and what everyone was talking about, I thought we would be talking about new stuff from Apple, because that was the big rumor was this past Tuesday would be Apple Stuff Day. Uh, and I think we mentioned that last week. Uh, it turns out it wasn't. <laughs> and who knows what they're going to do. <laughs> but but uh, instead, we get to another very interesting topic that uh, Jack, you brought up and, uh, and Father Andrew, I know you've got a little experience with. And this is about using emulation to play retro games. Now, emulation, just as a quick definition, and we've talked about emulation before, but just as a recap, emulation is a way of simulating a different kind of computer system in your modern current system, whether you have a Mac or PC or Linux box, or even on your, your phone or tablet, uh, you know, you could emulate a, an old DOS system or Atari or Nintendo. And we've talked about some of these before, but uh, tonight we want to talk about, we're recording that night, so <laughs> cats out of the bag. But to this episode, we're talking about uh, a couple of different, emulators that you guys have experience with one of what's the what's the best dos emulator for for people like the old microsoft dos if people want to play old dos games what's the best one jack dos box that's DOS pretty box. much the okay. go-to for this i didn't even know that there was others out there to be honest <laughs> there's a few but no one really uses them okay and what do you need to do? Like, what kind of systems will you be able to run this on? Like, what kind of computers will you can you run DOSBox on? You can run it on any halfway decent computer, whether it's Windows or Linux or Mac. I have one of the new M1 Macs, and it's had no issue running it on that new chipset. Mm. Okay. And uh, what's involved? Like, if you install, so you you know, there's a website, DOSBox.com, and you download the software for your, for your computer, I guess. And then what? What do you? Where do you go from there? Like, how do you? How do you get from? I've downloaded this emulator to I'm playing my old, favorite old game. That's the nice thing about these older systems, whether it's the Commodore sixty four or DOS, is that it's really easy to run. It's basically just an executable. You run it, and it brings up the wind, uh, the command prompt. And that's where a lot of people who are used to graphical interfaces are going to get stuck because it just gives you the command prompt, the flashing cursor, and then you got to figure out the commands to type in. Fortunately, that's not going to be something that's really an issue nowadays with the internet. But it's it's pretty much as simple as that. Okay. So the the prompt comes up, and we'll have a link to a, an article uh, about how to use DOSBox for beginners. Uh, it looks like the article references installing it on, on a Windows computer, but is it pretty much the same? on others like on mac or linux yeah it's it's pretty much the same you just run the installer or in the case of the mac you just drag it into the applications folder and you're good to go okay and then so once i've got it installed uh i need some games how do i uh how do i get like the old games for it can i can i jump in first yeah. uh oh, sure. jack i imagine you probably know where to find games because i 
I don't because I all of my old retro games are like the games that I still have the CD-ROMs and the floppy <laughs> disks from when I was a kid. So that's where I'm pulling all of mine from. And basically my process with DOSBox, um, and it's it was actually really fun to put this all together, was I pulled all of the files off of the either the floppy disks or um, the CD drives. Um, in fact, one that I'm going to mention very specifically by name is Star Trek A Final Unity, which was the coolest DOS game when I was a kid. Me and my brother would play that for hours. But <laughs> I basically pulled all the files from the CD CD-ROM, pulled them onto my computer, and I've kept those files for decades now. And so I have a folder on my computer that is just labeled STTNG for Star Trek The Next Generation. <laughs> and then I have a, um, it's, <laughs> it's it gets kind of techy, but there, there's a preferences file in the DOSBox folder once you mm -hmm. install it on your computer that you can have it automatically execute a few commands as it boots up. And so there's a specific command that you can have it execute that's called mounting. And so basically what that is, is you're telling DOS that you want to take a particular folder on your hard drive and make it think that that's a, a hard drive within the DOS or that that DOS can access. Right. Or you can take a folder and you can label it as a CD drive within DOS. So I have my my uh, these I have these executable commands that will take that folder make DOSBox thinks, thinks that it's a CD and then run the executable as if I had plugged in a CD in my old Windows 95 and DOS was just playing well with everything. So right. that's kind of my process. In fact, I've got a bunch of those. They're called batch files because you have a batch of commands that they will just execute one right after another. And it's it's techy, it's geeky. Uh, but if you can kind of figure it all out and um, and get it to work, it's flawless it's really cool yeah and that's really the best way to do it because otherwise you have to type in the mount command every time you right. open it up right. so you just set that up and it points right to where all your stuff is and you just go into the file folder and you can run whatever you want you can also i know this doesn't work with every game but with some games you can literally just drag the exe onto the dos box icon and it will oh. just open it right up into the game nice cool. nice it's like like a lot of things if you google a little bit you know and you, you find the, the right link you know you'll find instructions you you have to be willing to go into the weeds yeah. <laughs> so to speak yeah um so it's it's not for the faint of heart because this is i mean we're so used to the the graphical user, user interfaces of the modern computer that it's just drag and drop and click and you're you're good to go and many people have zero or little experience with the command line of of dos right and and so it's it the commands are are very specific and there's a lot of them, and yeah, you kind of got to just be patient, and uh, yeah, it's not for the faint of heart, but it's it's a lot of fun if you if you want to get into the techie side of things. Yeah, and it's I find it a really good way to get into doing um, more command line programming for people because the older systems tend to be easier. It's not like you're jumping into using like Ubuntu server or something like that nowadays, mm -hmm. which you still have to use on the command line, but it can get really really complicated. So this is a good way for people to jump into that with less, there's less overhead, I feel like. Mm -hmm. There's also no risk per se. I mean, you just download this DOSBox app and if you, if you, I don't know, hit the wrong command and like, you know, you're, you're not going to destroy your computer. You right, know, it's, you it's, it's kind it. of a, it's kind of a sandbox that you can go in and play. And then if something goes completely wrong, you just exit the program and restart it and it's 
it's like a whole new DOS system booted up for you. So what what reasons would someone want to go through all this trouble? Why why go through all the trouble? I mean, we have these amazing games that you can get. You can even download on your phone. You know, the, the these high they spend a billion dollars to create these amazing graphical interfaces. Why would someone want to do this? I think the biggest reason for most people is going to play, be playing those old games that they played as kids. That's one of the reasons I did it. Is um, there's this game called Star Trek 25th Anniversary, oh, um, yeah. which is a really really fun <laughs> game. I remember playing that on my old computer growing up. Um, that and Commander Keen. So those those are the main reasons that most people are going to do it is for those old retro games. But it's also just fun as kind of a historical project to see how computers used to run in the old days. Because I grew up in the late 90s, early 2000s. So it was kind of end of DOS, Windows 95, 98 era. So I never got to use a Commodore 64 in real life. And I like retro computing, but I don't know if I want to spend all the time and money to get an old retro Commodore 64 and repair it so it works and do all that kind of thing. So this is a way for people who want to experience those systems to try it out without having to shell out all that money. Yeah, I would I would completely agree. I think even with all the modern games that's are, that are out there, a lot of them are just garbage. I mean, yeah. if I'm honest, yeah. I like a lot of them, but but there's something about the and I, and I'm sure for me it's it's a lot of it is nostalgia. But the the games that I played in the 90s were really fun and really cool. So like Star Trek uh, 25th anniversary, we had that. We had Star Trek A Final Unity. We had one called Space Quest 4. So the Space Quest series, that was like, it was making fun of Star Trek and Star Wars. And <laughs> you were you were this uh, plumber who was the hero of the whole, you know, the whole <laughs> game. And just, it was a lot of fun. And so I, of course, still have those. So, so a big draw for me. And having DOSBox on my computer is exactly that. I have all those old games booted up into my system. Um, one of the other things that I would point out, though, of people who are interested in this kind of thing, it can also be a helpful learning experience. So like when I was in college, uh, before I was in seminary, uh, I was studying computer science. And we one of the one of the classes that we had to take was assembly language, mm-hmm. which oh. was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, even more primitive than than DOS. And I mean, you're never going to write really an assembly language. But part of the process was that you need to understand how the CPU works, how the how the computer works, how the bytes, you know, interact and and how to uh, change them and how to modify them. And so part of just even doing DOS is just to even from a learning perspective is to understand how at least how computers of the 90s uh functioned right and, and that and i mean even the modern operating systems are just built on top of that over decades and, and improvements mm-hmm. and you know you're there's still command line things happening behind the scenes that we just don't see because we have the graphic graphical user interface in front of us but there's still all of that happening so it's a it's a helpful learning thing if you're if you're getting into computer science and want to want to code and and do all of that fun stuff and I think that's part of the reason um, that it's so much fun is that there's less of that separation between the actual computer hardware and the control you have over it. Like as computers have become more advanced and operating systems have gotten better and better, we've gotten further away from really understanding what's going on with the circuitry. It just does it. And there's no, you don't ever have to see any of the messy stuff underneath, but it's fun to see that stuff sometimes. And I also think that um, to your point about the older games being more fun, 
I think part of that was because people had to be a lot more clever when they were programming the games. Because nowadays you can uh, pull up Unity or something like that and create a game in, in any style you want. You can make it pixelated or you can make it look as good as you want. But there's no there's no real limitation to what you can do. And so you can be a bit more lazy with how things work. One of the things, so <laughs> I, I I laugh a little bit at the nostalgia for the 90s things because my nostalgia is from <laughs> the 80s and the late 70s. But uh, actually, it's more of the 80s games. We didn't have a computer in the 70s. I was too young for that. But uh, it's interesting because there is an emulator for like, because my computer was the Apple II. That's what I had when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. We had a 2E, a 2GS, a 2C. And you can, there's actually an emulator built into the Internet Archive at archive.org that has a bunch of Apple II uh, software in it, including a bunch of the games that I loved as, you know, Choplifter, Cubert, uh, like all these great games I spent hours playing. And they were simple, they were fun. And in fact, a lot of the casual games we have today on the phones are really reminiscent of the casual nature of a lot of those early games because they couldn't they couldn't be complicated they had to fit on a five and a quarter inch floppy in like 80k of memory or whatever it was i mean it was you know ridiculously small uh so i i get that i it's very interesting so if i wanted to so all those apple ii uh games are uploaded into the internet archive but where would i get games these these amazing games from the past if i don't still own the cd roms i don't have the floppies or whatever uh what do i do if i want to play these old games the best website to go to is called myabandonware.com um and it has it's just got a big list of a bunch of different systems it has dos it has c64 it has all the apple machines it has atari um and it's just the different rom files that's what the game files are called um for these different games. The the one thing that people do need to be aware of though is that it's kind of a gray area with a lot of these files because they're not technically shareware, but with a lot of them they've never released them for modern modern systems and there's no way to legally purchase them. And so the way my abandonware works is if there's a game that gets re-released for a modern system, they will take down the link so and they'll just give you a link to where you can purchase it. So that's kind of how they get around that, and that seems to be a system that the companies are fine with. You can also use other places if you want to find some more obscure games, but as always, you need to be careful when you're clicking on links on the internet to download things. Right, right. Downloading random software from random websites is generally a bad idea. You want stuff that's been you know websites that have been vetted by other people like like yourself right. so maybe we should talk about like some of the uh some of the games that you guys like i mean what what what's some of the ones that you guys like to download and play besides the ones you've mentioned uh father you mentioned so what was that star trek game you mentioned father the star trek unity because i'm gonna have to look that up it's called star trek a final unity final unity and uh, it's a tng game yeah it's a tng game um the original cast is all they all voiced it Oh, so wow. I mean it's 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 pretty advanced for a for a DOS game. I mean the the graphics are are really amazing. You you can engage in um fights with I mean the Romulans um mm-hmm. there's uh, they introduce a new a new species called the Chodak and so there's a mystery behind there and they're searching for this I forget the fine a final I don't know they're, they're they're searching for this device that will like infinite destruction or or something mm-hmm. and so you go from planet to planet and you're searching for it and there's um you lead away missions and so you're 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 controlling characters that are walking on the on the ground but you're also controlling um the ship as it's 
going to and from different different places. You can uh, encroach on the neutral zone and get attacked by the Romulans. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 pretty pretty darn amazing and um, uh, single player. But me and my brother would just spend hours, you know, playing it and kind of helping each other out and just getting stuck and frustrated and of course that was the time before google so you couldn't just google a walkthrough so it was you trial and error constantly on what to do and how to progress and uh yeah i I think that one is definitely my favorite dos game um also the whole space quest series i i kind (laughs) of mentioned those earlier that that those I would Star Trek was sort of my brother's thing. And so I, whenever I played it, it was sort of I was encroaching on his territory. So Space Quest became my thing. And same thing, but just a parody of Star Trek and, and Star Wars. And uh, Space Quest 4 in particular was the one that I grew up with. It was um, Roger Wilco, who is the, the main character and the Time Rippers. And so there's time travel involved. And the time travel was was cool because it would actually jump between the different games it would go back to an even earlier primitive version of the game which was base quest one or you'd jump forward in time and just ah super super fun as a kid you know so one of the great things about these old games is while the the graphics may have been somewhat primitive the creativity was just they were, yeah. they were just as creative yeah. as some of the best games today they just were yep. limited by the the computer systems, which sometimes, you know, constraints can make something better. You know, uh, some of these games with unlimited budgets of, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in some cases, mm-hmm. they go all over the place and they and they fail. Uh, we've seen several high profile versions of that recently. Uh, but, you know, these games had constraints and they and they had to work within them and it made them more creative and more interesting. And that's I think that's one of the reasons these games last so long. Uh, like Super Mario Brothers, you know, that if you go back to you get an NES emulator. I mean, some mm-hmm. of those old NES em- uh, games were super fun, super interesting, infinitely pl- replayable. And I think that's one of the, the appeals. I will point out one other game as well. The the King's Quest series. Oh, I was about yeah. to mention that. Um, and, and in particular, uh, the, you were talking about just the innovation that they had to do is is some of those games were text based um, games that I mean, you had you had a visual representation of what was going on, but in order to like pick up the rock, you had to type "pick up rock," <laughs> yeah. you know, and and maybe uh, you could use the the arrows on the keyboard to control. But uh, so even just how you played a game was was so different when you had to think about it in those kind of commands. And mm-hmm. yeah, the the ingenuity in creating that is it's huge. It's and and just yeah, again kind of a blast from the past and a lot of fun. Jack, how about you? What are some of the the other games, the retro games that you like to play in emulation? Um, Like I previously mentioned, uh, Star Trek 25th Anniversary, which is similar to Final Unity. It's more simplistic and it's set in the original series rather than Next Generation. Um, But it's the same kind of thing. You can go to different planets and you uh, walk through these different episodes. They're the missions. Um, You can do space combat, um, which is a lot of fun. And it was funny, back when I would play it in the day... um, they give you a big star map where you can fly to different planets, but we didn't have the manual. So we didn't know which planets we were supposed to go to for the missions. So we'd spend half the time just flying to different planets and then fighting people before we finally got to where we were supposed to go. That was always a lot of fun. That's awesome. Um, Another one I really enjoyed um, is the uh, TIE Fighter and X-Wing series. Oh, Star Wars. Yeah. The, The space combat ones. Those are a lot of fun. 
And nice. it's funny thinking about these old games when you're a kid and you, when you think about them, when you were a kid, you think about how amazing the graphics were and right. then you see them, you play them again, you know, like this, this doesn't really look that good, but yeah, you yeah. know, it's got that nostalgia and they, again, they're just a lot of fun. But it, it was weird because as a kid, I, I didn't even care that it didn't look good. It looked amazing. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, you it know, looks like, so when, real. Yeah. When when you compare it to the modern graphics, it's like, wow, that's, that's just so primitive. Nowadays. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. I I need to throw out one more one more shout out. Uh the Star Wars Dark Forces uh oh, games. Oh yeah. And no, in particular because the Dark Trooper shows up in Dark Forces, the DOS game. Right. Those are the same Dark Troopers that inspired the Dark Trooper in uh The Mandalorian. Yeah. Oh nice, that's awesome. So, that's yeah, yeah. I just rewatched that episode last night. The uh, oh, the uh, the one so where they good. showed up. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I just wanted to see Boba Fett, you know, beat up the stormtroopers. <laughs> uh, but that's a whole other show. Secrets of Star Wars. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I, I'm thinking back to some of the games, like nostalgic games that actually are now open source and have been recompiled for newer systems. Like, for example, Marathon by Bungie. Bungie is known for making the amazing Halo series, but before mm-hmm. Halo, there was Marathon, which was made for max and uh they actually open sourced it they released the code and so it's been recompiled for newer systems so you, i you can actually play marathon on your iphone or an ipad from the app store which just blows my mind a little bit uh but i remember spending hours and hours when i should have been studying playing <laughs> playing marathon i mean i would start to see the patterns in my sleep it was maybe too much playing marathon but uh <laughs> yeah just it was but it was such a, an amazing story that mm-hmm. i mean i can even hear the like the the sounds that the aliens make just before they were attacking you yeah <laughs> it, it was kind of creepy but uh yeah it's just so great like or like i play civiliz- civilization 6 which is a great game it's a modern game you know they're still making uh new dlc for it but i think back to the, one of my favorite versions was civilization 3 you know and i would love to go back and play civ 3 again um if i could find a you know an emulation and do that so it's a lot of fun to kind of revisit some of these things mm-hmm. and we think about other other art forms you know, like we could watch movies from 80 years ago no problem right mm-hmm. or we could watch tv shows from 50 years ago which i do all the time with you know Secrets of doctor who and star trek but to in order to enjoy this art form or you know we look at art you know paintings and sculptures from a thousand years ago but in order to enjoy this art form we need to have it needs to be able to work in a particular technology and that's that's the difficulty and i'm glad that there are people out there who are trying to keep them alive this it's an art form it is you know it's like a yeah it definitely is like books and there's been there's been a real revival of retro computing um i think the internet has allowed people with these interests to all meet up and find each other and so that community is really growing and there's actually a lot of people developing new games for old retro systems uh there's one i want to mention called planet x3 that's made by, I don't know if you've seen his videos, but the 8-Bit guy on YouTube, he does a lot of computer restorations and a lot of retro uh, gaming videos. Uh-huh. Um, he wrote a real-time strategy game for MS-DOS uh, called Planet X3, and it's one of the most complex games that's ever been written for that system. But that's a really fun one. Cool. That's that's kind of amazing to go... Like It's one thing to, to uh, revive old games, but to write a new game for an old system, that, that's kind of fantastic. Right. That's uh, uh, that's that's a special kind of dedication. <laughs> here, here, here's another uh, throw out, or a uh, shout out. There's a game on the Nintendo Switch called The Messenger, 
So mm-hmm. it's a game that was developed for the Nintendo Switch, not not an old game at all. But it's mm-hmm. it's the the first half of the game is in eight bit graphics, and then at the end of the game, you're like this ninja, and you and it's a platformer, and you have to get to the end. And once you get to the end, it then it's a time travel experience, and it jumps to sixteen bit, and oh, then you wow. have to go back and forth between time to 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 solve the the whole game, and you jump between eight bit and sixteen bit. So uh, just to, to exactly what you said, that there's there is this desire, even in the modern games, to to recapture some of that earlier uh, aesthetics of the, yeah. the 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 retro games, even though they're completely new games and they have maybe even the modern controls and all of that. They have the visual style of the older games, which is really cool. Uh, and then the other thing that I would mention um, is the Nintendo systems in general. Uh, a lot of people are probably playing emulations uh, through that without even realizing that, that if you buy the the Nintendo Switch online service, you have access to a ton of original Nintendo games and a, a lot of uh, Super Nintendo games. And both of those systems are run through emulation on mm-hmm. your Nintendo Switch hardware. Oh, okay. So though that that is the way to um, completely legal way to play the old Nintendo games, the old Mario games, the old Zelda games. Um, most, but not all, are on there. And so if you're looking for the Nintendo nostalgia, the Nintendo Switch emulation is the way to go. There are also a few systems if you just want to buy hardware that does the emulation. There's a mm-hmm. C64 Mini, which is basically a miniature uh, Commodore 64 with a bunch of games. It also runs Commodore Basic if you want to write your own programs on it. Um, again, and also with the uh, miniature, uh, I can't remember what it's called, like the miniature NES that you could get. I know those things have been oh, hard yeah. to find, but it's the same kind of thing. It's just an emulator yep. that has a bunch of games pre-installed on it. I got one for Atari that it's, it looks like the old Atari controller, but all mm-hmm. the electronics are now built into the controller. You can just plug it into your TV, like directly in. And and it's so the controller is the uh, is the emulator and it's got yeah. all the old Atari games. And speaking of Atari games like Plex, which is is known for its media server for like watching movies and TV shows and other content you put on it uh, th- through a, a server that you're running on a either a computer or, or a network attached storage. They have a new Plex Arcade that they just announced, which it's going to be three bucks a month if you're a Plex Pass subscriber or five bucks a month if you're not. And you'll play all these old Atari arcade games, literally arcade games like Centipede, Super Breakout, uh, Missile Command, and then ones for some of their consoles as well. It's only got 27 games and your Plex media server has to be running on Windows or Mac. It can't be running on a Linux, which means it doesn't work on uh, network attached storage. Uh, so that that's a downside. And it's only 27 games for three bucks a month, which... Three bucks a month isn't a lot, but if you really love Atari, this may be the thing for you for a while. Uh, we'll see how it goes. And, and you play it on like a, uh, your iPhone or your, your Android phone or, you know, you, you can play it on different things. There's a there's a front end piece of software, but mm-hmm. the server has to run the the, you know, has to stream it to the that software. But that's that's another option that, that I found out there as well, which is interesting. So it it's growing, like you said, it's growing, and even new games, like some of the games my kids play from Apple Arcade, which are these brand new games, they have those eight mm-hmm. bit graphics, like What the yeah. Golf, and uh, sort of like Sneaky Sasquatch, which is sort of semi low res. And I appreciate. I just want to to throw this out there that I appreciate what you said earlier about it being an art. Yeah, there there there, there kind of was a time even when I was growing up that it was sort of 
almost looked down upon if you if you played video games or you you invested in them or you you know my parents probably <laughs> looked down <laughs> on my on my time spent on video games right you know but but it's it's just it's amazing the 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 graphics that go into it the art that goes into it and i also want to in particular mention the the music that goes into it oh yeah i yeah. i am a sucker for soundtracks and and I mean, I even have soundtracks from some of those games that are all the way back with the with the old, you know, 16 bit music. And just again, like there's there's so much art. And uh, in fact, there's there's a uh, orchestra, um, a symph- symphony orchestra called um, Video Games Live. Uh-huh. So, um, oh, yeah. um, in fact, I don't think it's a unique orchestra, but I think they, they go to different cities and, and work with the orchestras in the cities, but they play video game music in a live performance. And I've been to one of those and they, oh, wow. they broadcast, um, on a projector behind the screen. Like if they're playing music from the legend of Zelda, they have a uh, video from the game behind it or halo and, and and again, like the 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 art that is there is just phenomenal, and and shouldn't be something that we just kind of dismiss as if movies are are better. Mm-hmm, you know, right. it's they're 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 both equal in their in their amazingness and the art that goes into it. So and there's so much ingenuity that went into engineering them and writing them. Um, I'll actually uh, give you a link. Um, you can put in the show notes of a video uh, series that goes over the history of how old school graphics were done and old school music was done and the different mm. things they would do like yeah. with hardware sprites or like getting around the limitations of the system to like make a three voice speaker sound like way more yeah. instruments just all this amazing yes. things that they're able to do uh, another another quick shout out uh there's a podcast out there called the soundtrack show by michael w collins who does voice acting for star wars by the way Ooh. oh nice uh he has just released part two of a three-part series on the legend of zelda music and he talks about that in the old original nes game the the, the hardware that they had to use to to make the music and the limitations that were there and the composing that went into it is is truly remarkable mm. but the soundtrack show he does uh he talks about the the soundtracks of movies as well so it's not just video games but another yeah. good one to go check out so also if you're interested in the history of video games the netflix has a documentary series called high score came out last summer mm-hmm. it's somewhat uneven it's not a it's it's not great but there are yep. some excellent parts to it and it kind of goes each episode it's like four or five episodes and it goes through a, every decade 70s 80s 90s you know and uh and it highlights the best of those decades and it really shows you especially the early episodes what all was involved in how to get games out there and 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 the the way the things they had to go through so uh that was that it's there's some pretty good uh, bits in there yeah it's 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 a good watch i yeah. i've watched it uh there's also a new one that just came out earlier in march and i haven't seen it yet but it's called playing with power it's a history of nintendo oh and it's on crackle Okay. Streaming service called Crackle. Um, you can, I think you can get it for free. I don't think you have to pay for it, but you have to download the app. So I've, I've got it in my queue, but I just haven't seen it yet. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you can usually watch Crackle stuff on Plex if you have Plex Pass. So just also okay. usually with okay. ads. Awesome. Cool. All right. So I guess we all have uh, a little homework to go do and play some, download some <laughs> emulators, download some ROMs, and play some old games. All right. Before we move on, I do want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of technology, including David T., Deacon N., Ricky S., Christopher M., and Claire P. 
Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue The Secrets of Technology and all the shows at StarQuest. Now's a great time to become a StarQuest patron. Thanks to a generous gift from a StarQuest supporter when you start a new Patreon monthly pledge at sqpn.com slash give. The first three months will be matched by an equal amount from our donor to support all our shows, including this one, which makes your gift go even further. And we're like three quarters of the way to our goal of $2,000 in new monthly pledges. And the, this goal we have is to help us do some new things, which we've got in the in the hopper, uh, including a couple new shows. One I'm really excited about uh, that uh, we, that I've been wanting to do for a while, and it's really cool. You'll really like it. So if we get that off the ground, that would be great. And, you know, improvements to our website and some other things that will benefit the whole community. So won't you help us close that gap? If you've been thinking of becoming a StarQuest patron, now's the time. Visit sqpn.com slash give today. So let's uh, talk about some of our headlines. Uh, so this first one is interesting. T-Mobile, which I, f- I feel like has changed a bit since their merger with Sprint. Let's just, their, their corporate culture may have changed a bit. It's <laughs> but, a nice uh, way to put it. <laughs> yeah, they, uh, they, they said that they're going to start sharing the your, their customers' web browsing and app usage data from their phones with third-party advertisers unless the customer opts out. So you have to uh, proactively say, I don't want you to share my data. Now, they've since this first came out, they've backtracked a little bit and said, no, 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 no. So what we're, you know, we're, we're going to let people know that we're doing this and give them the opportunity to opt out. Opt out. But of course, there's still need, you still need to opt out instead of opt in. So what do you guys think of, of this plan by T-Mobile? I think anytime they're making keeping your privacy more private as the opt-in option is the wrong way to go. Because you're going to get a lot of people who they're going to get the text message saying, hey, click here to opt into this thing. And of course, they're going to word it in a way that makes it sound beneficial. And then 95% of people are just going to ignore it unless you know what to look for. Well, it's the way that they write it. Like they, they say, we'll, we, we only share advertising IDs. We're pooling the data. The, the advertisers only receive a watered down version of, the, of your, your data. What does that even mean, though? Like what is like that doesn't actually tell you exactly what data they're going to get. And a lot of times, even once the identifying information is stripped out of this kind of data, these advertisers then, you know, grab data from other sources and pool it together. And there's enough, still enough connection there to mm-hmm. be, to build a pro, rebuild that profile and connection to you. It, well, and it's it's just it's terrifying. Uh, I'm assuming I'm pretty sure you guys will probably both seen the the social dilemma, the documentary yes. on Netflix. Yeah, right. Just uh, and and it's it's real that there is more or less an online avatar of every single one of us that that knows, you know, what we click on, how long we are browsing Facebook. And I mean, so our our private information is is not really private. So so anytime that there's this this push to share that even more, just it's it it's really scary and terrifying. Yes. Um, you know, and so anything that we can do to 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 clamp down on our privacy is is helpful. And I mean Ultimately, at this point, the only way to clamp down fully is to get rid of your smartphone and go back to a dumb phone. But use the retro computers we were just talking about. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and and that's the the big thing to kind of shift it a bit, and not just to be Apple fanboying, but this was is at the heart of Apple's mm-hmm. fight with Facebook. 
Facebook keeps saying, oh, we're we're on the side of the little guy, the little companies that want to advertise. And and big mean Apple is not letting us share information like an Apple saying, no, we're on the side of the person who owns the phone, you know, that we don't want you to give that person's information to these little companies. There are right. We have. You know, there have been ways to advertise to people from time immemorial that don't require you to know everything possible about people, mm-hmm. the people you're advertising to. And, you know, that you have to suck it up. And, and just because we can do a thing, we shouldn't necessar- necessarily do it. Yep. Right. And I think this is just a constant struggle um, because so many of these companies like Google and Facebook and Twitter, they're providing a service that they're not charging for. And so what they're selling is the user's data. And so they're always going to want to get more of that data to sell so they can increase their profits. Mm. Speaking of Facebook uh, getting more data, now they want to read your brain. (laughs) 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 Actually, this is our second headline Uh, is uh, Facebook is making a bracelet that lets you control computers with your brain. Yes, they want to be inside your head. So what it is, is it's a, (laughs) It's a wristband right right now what they have that's a proof of concept, but it's a something that goes in your wrist and it detects movements you intend to make and interprets the electrical activity from your motor nerves to then manipulate what's happening uh, in an augmented reality is what is how they they phrased it so you know when you, if you think you want to touch something that you see in the air in front of you, you don't actually have to move to touch it. It does it for you. And you're like, how can you possibly do that? In fact, there are some street musicians and illusionists who who actually can detect micro expressions and micro movements. When you when you're thinking of a thing, when you're thinking of I want to reach for that glass in the instant before you actually reach for it, your body has almost an imperceptible little like jump, like a little bit of it. It moves toward it. That you like you normally wouldn't be able to tell, but there's a sort of a it's a, how do I put it? It's like a precursor to the actual movement, mm-hmm. and uh, and I think this goes even beyond that to the the electrical signals that start firing, and they can detect what that means, what that what those you know signals can do. I'm I'm not sure I want Facebook to be able to read my brain. <laughs> what do you guys think of this? I'm fascinated by the technology behind it. Yeah, but I am not happy that it's facebook doing it (laughs) yeah that's that's my big issue too it's cool technology i don't want facebook to be doing it it's the same issue i had when they bought oculus Mm -hmm, i really like the oculus technology i don't want to have to have it be tied to facebook yep yeah says the two of us who own oculus (laughs) (laughs) it's kind of the the necessary evil is to have the facebook account for it yeah right well, and that's the interesting thing when I was thinking about this is like, how would like they talk about this with augmented reality, but I'm thinking even in virtual reality, which is immersive, uh, this sort of technology that can interpret body movement so that like one of the limitations of the current virtual reality stuff is I can't move around in the environment. I can't walk over there, I'll bump into the wall or trip over the sofa. Uh, whereas if if it interprets my intent to move, that could like if I think I need to run. I don't actually have right. to run. I could it, the the avatar would run for me. I think that's a very interesting I, use of it. Again, we are mo- we are moving towards Ready Player One uh, <laughs> <We are. laughs> virtual reality. Just waiting for the holodeck. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Please, please give us the holodeck. Um, so that it's interesting. It's all proof of concept. It's you know years yeah. from an actual product, but uh, interesting. Uh, I I find Facebook's entry into these other areas. 
away from social media to be very interesting. I think they want to be more than a social media company. They want to be a consumer electronics technology conglomerate sort of company like uh, doing the same thing google did yeah right 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 exactly uh i think and it's in their best interest to diversify frankly (laughs) it's just gonna be interesting to see if they can overcome the privacy hurdles that they had because i i feel like at this point i don't know anyone who actually likes facebook they just use facebook because Mm -hmm. what else are you going to use for social media that's a bad place to be for a company that yeah. everyone everyone uses you so you're very you know you're very widely used but everyone hates you yeah <laughs> yep. which means they will abandon you at the earliest opportunity that something better comes along that's that's a bad place yep. to be all right and then uh, our our last headline so go with our last headline here this you know 2020 2021 in the the lockdowns and all that sort of learning apps have boomed in the past year and by the learning apps this is a new york times headline the uh, the learning apps they they really mean apps for education schools that sort of stuff primarily uh, in this and they've they said as the pandemic winds down or at least as the lockdowns wind down and people start to emerge again and kids go back to school what's going to happen to all these companies that've had that have seen this huge boom they've seen you know millions of new users Billions of dollars of investment, billions of dollars of of school district money spent on them. Uh, some of these are going to like like what's going to happen to say like a Zoom and not just for schools but also for business when people don't need to Zoom as much as they used to and that sort of thing. Um, it's an interesting question that that comes up. There are, there are, there are upsides and downsides for these companies. What do you guys think? I think it's going to be one of those situations that you always get whenever there's a sudden need in the market that has to be filled. You get a bunch of early companies that come up and provide a service. And then once that need dies down and mm-hmm. things have stabilized, the ones who are smart have already figured out, hey, this is not always going to be our bread and butter. What is our path forward? And they'll succeed. And the other ones are just going to go out of business or get bought up. And I think some of them will, will continue. Um, I suspect Zoom will continue because, you know, right. it's it's not just a... A learning thing, but but so many businesses and even um, here in in the diocese, we've been using it to to have meetings with with all the priests in the presbyterate, which you know where we encompass the entire state of Wyoming, so we can't just all come together easily. And this allows for that kind of communication in a way that we hadn't considered that before the pandemic. Right now, that being said, I'd rather that not be a uh, frequent thing because I just, I, I get really tired of, of zoom meetings. Yes. You know? And so you, there's definitely something that you're missing um, with being just on, on a zoom meeting. But so uh, basically I think some, a company like zoom will, will continue to, to succeed. Um, they may not get the users that they had during the pandemic, but I think they'll continue, you know, I imagine, you know, some of the online Google classroom or, or those sorts of things will also continue, but, some of the others, I think, yeah, will need to to shift in order to to continue. Yeah, it's it's interesting that there's been a change in behavior that I think some of the behavior, the change is going to stick around. I think there will always be from this point on, there'll be more people working from home than before with yep. more remote workers. And I think that. While a lot in the especially in the beginning and in, in, even now, a lot of remote learning has been let's well it wasn't let's try to adapt our learning to a new way of of a new paradigm. It was let's let's you know stamp 
our old way of doing education on this new technology, mm -hmm. you know, so trying to do like the old classroom, but just over Zoom instead of in person. And that's not going to work. And and I think that it has proven out uh, that has been less than successful. But I think that in many cases, there will be places where they've found new paradigms, new ways of doing things. I mean, for one thing, they've spent school districts have spent billions of dollars on new laptops and new tablets and new apps. And they're going to want to continue to use those. They're going to want to you know, get mm -hmm. something out of that investment. I think that part will probably still continue to some some bit. I'm happy about telehealth sticking around for those follow-up appointments where you oh. don't need to go into the doctor. Yes. Well, let me tell you, for for kids, I want to say this carefully. <laughs> I don't want to impede uh, in my kids' privacy. But for my kids' uh, medical appointments, some of the kids, they have anxiety about going to the doctor mm -hmm. but being able to to do a telehealth appointment from the comfort of the couch or actually usually it's from my bedroom with my wife and and, and the child sitting on the on the on the bed talking to the to the doctor it's been uh, it's we've been able to do things that would have been so much harder before i i love telehealth well also it makes it easier because you don't have to get in the car you don't have to drive all over there you don't have to figure out what mm -hmm. to do with the rest of the kids while you're at the appointment yeah i agree in fact i kind of wish there was more of it and not less of it but uh, i i think i think telehealth you're exactly right telehealth is one mm -hmm. of those things that should definitely continue all right so uh i think that's that should do it for this. Uh, the headlines. Let's uh, let's go to our picks of the week. And Jack, I'm going to let you go first with your pick this week. All right. Usually for my pick of the week, I try to do something that is either really cheap or free. So this time I'm going to go in the opposite direction. <laughs> my right. pick of the week is the uh, M1 uh, M1 MacBook Air. I got it about two months ago, and it is probably the best computer I've ever had. Wow. I'm not getting paid by Apple to say that. I just really, really enjoy it. <laughs> it's super fast. Um, I know there's been some talk of compatibility issues with the M1 chip. I've not personally ran into anything that wasn't working other than a few Steam games that are for Windows anyway, so it's a moot point. Um, I've never had the computer even get slightly warm, which is nice, even when running pretty complex uh, graphics programs. And I got the base model, so it has the 7 GPUs and the 8 CPUs and the only 8 gigs of RAM, and I've not run into any bottlenecks. It really feels like Apple has broken the paradigm, you know, broken out of the like we, we've always compared, you know, oh, how many CPUs, how many cycles, you know, kilohertz, how much RAM does it hold? And it feels like they've kind of broken that paradigm and it doesn't you can't really it's literally apples to oranges these days, you know, when comparing <laughs> to other computers and every I have not heard one person say, oh, yeah, this is not all it's cracked up to be. I mean, literally every reviewer from even the PC magazines are, is out there saying, yeah, this is the thing. I mean, apart from Intel, who's having their lunch eaten by Apple in this case, mm -hmm. uh, this is uh, it's something. And this is keep in mind the first generation of this new chip. Yeah. I mean, uh, it blows my mind. And I think what they're doing is instead of kind of doing the Band-Aid fix that we've been doing for years with computers, which is let's just add more cores or add more gigahertz or add more RAM, they're, they redesigned how the chip architecture works so you don't need as much, uh, as much RAM or as much memory to do things. It's just right. doing it in a smarter way. Right. That's the thing. They went back to the drawing board. Right. It was all like the, how they Intel was getting them to go faster was we need to make the 
the pathways shorter, the, you know, the 14 nanometer, the 10 nanometer process and, you know, make it smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller so that it, you know, the, it's the the speed of light problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so if we if it has to, the signal has to travel less distance, we can make it faster. And that was how they were solving things. But they've run into the, the wall of what's physically possible. And Apple said, let's step back and reimagine. You know, they hired a lot of really smart CPU engineers and that sort of stuff. Yeah. And uh, they they come up with this is we've reimagined how this stuff can work. It's amazing. And I really think they they're looking at it as a almost like a bigger iPad than a viewing it like a laptop at this point. Like the right. way the chips are designed and the way the computer is built. Well, that's essentially what the, the M1 chip is essentially the next generation iPad chip. It's, yeah. in, in fact, I think it might be it's they're not exactly the same, of course, because there are there are parts of the M1 that don't ex, don't exist and don't need to exist for a phone or iPad. But I think it's the core of it is is essentially the same chip that's in the iPhone 12, which is kind of fascinating when you think about that, the amount of power that that means it's in those devices. Yeah. Um, I'm just I'm yeah, I, uh, like you, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing what the next iMac is going to look like, because. I'm just telling you, I can edit a lot faster by <laughs> these, <laughs> these podcast episodes. Uh, just kidding. Only a little. So very good pick. Thanks. Thank you, Jack. And and to point out those MacBook Air is just around, you know, it's still pretty inexpensive. That base model is just around a thousand, right? Somewhere around there. Yeah, it's 999. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of power for uh, for a for a Mac at that price. All right, Father Andrew, what's your pick this week? So I'm going to go on the complete opposite end of the spectrum from Jack. Mine is free. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but to to lay the context, since we were talking about kind of retro games and those sorts of things with emulation, um, my pick of the week is a game called Crash on the Run. So it's a um, Crash Bandicoot game. And if you don't recognize that name, that, that was... Basically, the Mario uh, as Mario is to Nintendo, Crash Bandicoot was to the PlayStation. Okay. So, uh, so I remember even on the PlayStation One having one of those and playing Crash Bandicoot and loved it. But this new game, it actually was just released. It will be released today as the podcast releases. Um, I got to beta test it for the last three weeks, which has been quite quite fun. But it's basically Crash Bandicoot in a Temple Runner game. So the the whole you just kind of endlessly run through um, temples and different sceneries as as some of the temple runner games from that were on your iPhone or Android from from years ago, they applied that to to Crash Bandicoot and all the characters and so there's there's boss fights and there's you know item collections and it's free to play. There are microtransactions if you really want to spend money and and you know, get all the items sooner you can, but it's completely free. You can do everything for free. And it's, it's again, one of those things that we're kind of hitting nostalgia, but with a, with a modern, a modern paint job. So I found it really fun. It's one of those games that I, I had a dentist cleaning today and I was able to just kind of sit in the waiting room and play, play it until I was called. (laughs) And it's, you can pick it up, put it down. There's no real investment in uh, a huge narrative. It's just, there's a small narrative, but not not big enough that you need to really sit down and focus on it. You can just kind of play it and play it for fun for five minutes or 30. Nice. Excellent. I'll have to check it out. 
So my pick is I've and I I switched in the middle of the show today because uh, you guys kind of inspired me uh, when you when you're talking about like the, that the the terminal and ha- seeing the DOS prompt and having to learn you know figure out what to do when you when you're at the terminal and even modern operating systems still run on top of the that old you know prompt the old command line uh, it reminded me that the Mac Mac OS runs on mm-hmm. Linux and or, or not Linux on I mean, a version of Unix and there's a terminal and it it can add so much to your enjoyment of the system or even to just the productivity that you experience if you learn how to use the terminal and some terminal commands. And so I'm going to suggest two things uh, pick this week. One is a program called iTerm2. It's an open source alternative to the terminal software that comes with the Mac. So the Mac has a program called Terminal, and you can use it. It's just fine. iTerm2 adds some uh, customization that you can do. Some uh, It'll do syntax coloring and some other things like that. Uh, but the other thing I want to suggest, that's just a program for doing terminal stuff. But the other thing I want to suggest is a book free called Taming the Terminal. It's you can There's a website, so you can re- read it for free on a website. And it teaches you how to work in the terminal on the Mac from start to finish, from the simplest things to the to some somewhat complex things. Uh, so it's available as a website, and it's also available in the Apple Books Store. So you can get it there as well. And it it comes in a bunch of formats. You can get it as a PDF, as an as a EPUB. They make it available every way you can imagine, and it's really great. And it takes you Allison Sheridan and Bart Bouchotz, Uh They they go through. Uh, all the, it basically teach you how to work in the terminal on a Mac uh, from start to finish. It was they started as a podcast, and when they were done, they compiled it all together into this book. So it's uh, it's really great. So I want to suggest those two things and become a terminal jockey. I will also add if you learn um, the Mac terminal, m- most of those commands are, will transfer over to Linux. So if you want to use that for Ubuntu or anything like that, it's going to be a lot of the same syntax. Yes, yes, exactly. There's a, there's very few things that are that are specific to Mac. Most things are pretty uh, general. Yeah, like SSH, SSHing, and you know the various things like that. Yeah, that would be totally transferable. Awesome. Very good. I think that was a, a really good discussion. Taking us back. Throwback day. Uh, very good. All right. So that's it from us. What do you think of our discussion? Do you have emulators that you like to use or do you have other questions about emulation and retro gaming? We'd love to hear from you. Let us know. Comment on the show at sqpn.com technology or the SQPN Facebook page, facebook.com slash Media. Or send an email to technology at sqpn.com. And you'll find links from our discussion and our picks of the week on our show notes at sqpn.com. If you can, we really do appreciate it when you can write a review of the show in Apple Podcasts or one of the podcast directories. It helps a lot when you write a review, actually. You'd be amazed at how much it helps to goose the algorithms. And also share the podcast with your friends. Help us grow this community of listeners. Uh, we love to interact with you, and we're here to share the, the knowledge. And so let's share it wider. Until next time, Father Andrew Kinstetter, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of technology. Absolutely. This is fun. Jack Barazzini, thank you as well. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Technology on StarQuest. <laughs>